When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Literary Studies. I am John Yargo, your host. Today's guests are Meredith Farmer and Jonathan Schroeder, the co-editors of a bracing new collection of essays about the figure of Ahab in Melville's novel Moby Dick. Meredith is the assistant teaching professor of core literature at Wake Forest University. Her book, Melville's Leaks, Science, Materialism, and the Reconstitution of Persons, is under contract at Northwestern University Press. Jonathan is the visiting assistant professor of American studies at Brandeis University. His articles have been published in American Literature, American Literary History, and the Rutledge Handbook of Reenactment Studies. His book, Prisoners of Loss, An Atlantic History of Nostalgia, is under contract with Harvard University Press. The title of the collection we are discussing today is Ahab Unbound, Melville and the Materialist Turn, which has been published through the the University of Minnesota Press in 2022. Welcome to the show, Meredith and Jonathan. Thank you very much. Thanks for that introduction. Yeah, thanks so much for having us today. First question, Ahab Unbound includes contributions from a range of scholars from Christopher Castiglia, Samuel Otter, Steve Mintz, Jonathan Lamb, and Bonnie Honick, among others. At the same time, these chapters all share a sensitivity to language and literary methods, as well as a theoretical sophistication. To begin with, can you discuss the evolution of this project? Did you always know that new materialism and Ahab would be so central to this book? You know, this was a two-part project really from the beginning. So I think right out the gate, we wanted to rethink Ahab, but we really wanted to do that specifically as an occasion to compare different materialisms. So I don't think we ever had a desire to just write a Melville book. I think we always wanted to engage with a wide range of materialist approaches and to see where they converged and where they diverged. So um I think that was really like a dual goal from the beginning. And at first, excuse me, we thought it would be interesting to really challenge and see what some of our favorite writers in the field who were 
thinking about Melville or materialism or both would say about the same famous character. So we went to a lot of different people and issued them a sort of challenge and said, you know, can you do this? We want to see what you find. Uh, Later on, we did start adding people who were already just joining the conversation on their own. So we found over like the long life of building this project that uh, people were really already having the conversation. We're actually responding to other people who were giving talks, drafting their essays. Jonathan, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I just want to also say that um, not to use, um, make it too much of a pun, but um, the collection sort of arose organically out of our observations that there was so much work at the intersection of materialism and Melville. And so we wanted to then give shape to that kind of uh, ferment. And we wanted to specifically give shape by putting basically theory and literature or single text and a new emerging theory into a dialectical relationship and make, as, as Meredith said, Ahab into an occasion for thinking through materialism both um, particular strands of materialism and different strands that are on offer today. And relatedly, I mean, one thing that we'd seen is that there were a lot of collections on materialism and new materialism that had come out over a period of time, but that in a lot of ways they were very scattered in a way that actually made it hard to make sense of how the different materialism stacked up against each other. So you could find a project on, affect theory or new ontologies or new materialisms and all of those really offered like a particular set of approaches but they didn't really compare the approaches through a clear lens and we were really really excited to do that work and we thought it was something that was missing yeah and and in those other pioneering collections you often got scholars from across the humanities and social sciences which is great, that diversity is amazing, but they were all working on their separate objects and using quite different, uh, I mean, quite different strands of materialism. And so creating a common object to work around seemed like a good way of putting um, a group of scholars in conversation with one another. It's like less a programmatic approach to something like new materialism or new ontologies or affect theory then it was really an attempt to provide something like a kind of comparative analysis around one case study. This book challenges what you have called the Cold War frame for understanding Ahab as a totalitarian monomaniac. How is your interpretation of Ahab different? For instance, why do you encourage us to see Ahab in the context of Leyden jars in the American storm controversy? And why, do, why is it important for um, the authors you've gathered in this collection to challenge that frame and to understand Ahab differently? So I'll start by talking a little bit about the relationship between authoritarianism and um, agency. But I think Meredith um, is the one to go to for the majority of this question. So I'll defer to Meredith in a second. Um, I'll just say that in my contribution to the collection and in the way that I wanted to think about the collection, I just found it particularly fascinating that one, 
scholars still held on to the consensus that Ahab's totalitarian uh, totalitarianism was a product of his agency or a sign of it, of his excessive agency. And yet the text of Moby Dick quite clearly indicates that he is no agent at all, but the living instrument of external forces. And so a materialist collection naturally turns outward to think about how Ahab is constructed by those external forces and is not a domineering agent, but is actually a comp- comp- has compulsive agency. He's compelled by external forces. Uh, Meredith, I'll turn it over to you. Uh, absolutely. Thanks, Jonathan. So, you know, I think there was a book that came out uh, early of the early in the moment that we were both in graduate school, and it was a book called uh, "This Isn't Good." Uh, hopefully, you can edit this out. The New Cambridge Companion to Melville Studies, I think. Um, let me go with this. Bob Levine edited a New Cambridge Companion, and the head companion uh, was at that point just the best edited collection I'd ever read. We were incredibly excited about it, and it ended with an essay by Chris Castiglia. And the final note of this collection was about the possibility of developing different Melvilles for different moments and the way that it was important to think about a Melville for our time. And I think at that moment, something really crystallized for me. It was really a defining moment. I know for my thinking, and I know Jonathan kind of immediately felt the same way, I think. And I started to ask the question, you know, what is it like to have a Melville for our time? A lot of us had been reading Melville with Latour, which now seems kind of old and a decade ago, which is what it was. But we were like, this is it. This is exactly what we're trying to do. We want to read this differently. We want to see things that are different. We want to pay attention to the non-human. And for us, to be honest, that's really where this started. I'd been working on a whole book project that was turning into a dissertation project on Melville and Latour, which then took all kinds of different paths. But for us, sort of, I think, challenging the Cold War frame actually started there. It was less a direct challenge to the Cold War frame and more a process of all really, like already reading Ahab differently. And for us, we moved from that to saying that we wanted to think about Ahab really seriously and differently in a materialist way. So, I mean, the way this really developed was to think more and more about things like disability. So, after brutally losing his leg and unfathomable working conditions, right? Ahab suffered from a mental illness that's widely mischaracterized. It's misunderstood. He was physically disabled. He was constantly in pain and he was now nourished. Beyond that, Ahab is repeatedly framed as passive to or influenced by his environment. You know, quote, subtle agencies of the weather we read wrought on Ahab's texture. And all of that in the book is every bit as prevalent as references to Ahab as a dictator or a tyrant. So one thing I know we wanted to ask is why readers ignore these aspects of the book. Why is it that they only follow this kind of well-trodden path that really only developed right after World War II or that took off in that moment? And we wanted to ask whether it was time following Chris Castiglia and others for a new Ahab to become more visible So part of what I know we've been thinking about is whether this is the start of a whole new wave of ratings of Moby Dick. And I think my students seem to think so. So they're obsessed with Ahab and disability. They don't really care about the dictator question. 
They want to talk about Ahab and physical disability. They want to talk about Ahab and invisible disability and mental illness, which I think is wonderful. Um, Jonathan, I'm going to turn this over to you. Yeah, I wanted to just pick up a couple of strands of what you really in, incisively summarized. And one of that, one of, I think it's important to see that one of the consequences of challenging the Cold War consensus which suggests that Ahab's authoritarianism is a byproduct of his agency uh, is to also challenge the kind of um, response to the materialist, to our materialist turn, which would be to say, isn't this a form of political quietism? Um, Isn't this a way of evading the question of authoritarianism altogether? And in fact, the collection resoundingly says no to that question specifically because the collection is really trying to formulate a politics that includes the non-human and how can you not have a politics that includes things like the environment nature whales in moby dick of all novels and so an example of an essay that really derives a democratic politics from um this kind of conjunction or enmeshment between the non-human and the human is Bonnie Honig's essay, um, which really looks at the way in which Starbuck, Ahab, and um, Ishmael, who kind of represents the crew, um, are triangulated, all of which that represent different political positions. And yet the crew's radical politics or radical democratic politics emerges out of their collective labor, for example, squeezing the sperm uh, of uh, the sperm when they're refining the oil. And it's in fact, in some way, the anti-sovereign or non-sovereign politics of the crew comes through their encounter with the whale, not through um, a human effort to control the environment, but rather through the kind of... um, an immersion in the odors and the uh, liquid of the whale itself. And I'll just quickly highlight, if it's okay, I, I just want people to hear again this sentence that Jonathan offered that was so helpful, which is, how can you not have a politics that includes the non-human? And that's something that just really doesn't make any sense to us. And we think that that's one of the most complicated things that needs to happen in this moment, um, that we have to stop thinking about politics in ways that do corridor off a human instead that are rigorously both um, aware of the post-human, but also you're rigorously post-humanist. Or at least I feel that way. I won't put those words in Jonathan's mouth. I've drunk more of the Kool-Aid here. Speaking of which, uh, Ab Unbound takes a nuanced and somewhat critical approach to the new materialism. In your introduction, Meredith, you raise uh, the question of how a leveled ontology might obstruct our view of political agency. Can you tell us what the new materialism is and how new materialism might uh, further inform our political and intellectual lives? Absolutely. Um, Thank you so much for this question, because this is the hardest question, I think, of the collection. So one thing I'll highlight first is I think this book isn't really about the so-called new materialism. So one thing we really want to do is to say instead that it's about materialism broadly construed. 
Uh, we've heard a lot of talk lately about the new materialism that really streams from work by Jane Bennett. And we think that work is helpful and interesting. It's something two or three of our authors cited, and we're happy to have it included. But we also think that we're engaged with something that's a lot broader than that. So part of what really interested us instead is, again, divergence. So the ways that 16 authors draw on discourses that are grouped together as materialism and the ways that they do really different things. So one way we often talk about it is that atomism and vitalism are absolutely not the same thing. And we've got two authors who write essays that are right next to each other, uh, Mark Noble and Branka Arsic, who are engaging with atomism and vitalism. And it turns out they do not offer the same readings. Uh, and in fact, those things probably shouldn't be grouped together because when you actually know about those discourses, they set themselves against each other. Uh, so that's an example of the kind of work that we wanted the collection to be able to do. And part of why we don't want to be penned down under that new materialist banner. So hopefully that's helpful to people because I know there've been a lot of questions about this. Um, but for us, really what materialism is or what we tried to have it do is that we wanted something that was robust enough to capture a lot of these different readings or to hold things like atomism and vitalism. They're often set against each other differently. We wanted something that, second, really resisted privileging the human as an organizing principle, and third, that really methodologically takes up post-humanism in a way that's symmetrical about humans and also other things and creatures. So basically, we were invested in the post-human, but also the post-humanist. So we wanted to think about materialism as something that really designates some sort of substratum, like matter, whatever that might be, that unites human and non-human categories. And uh, really for us, I think like the central claim is just that matter is attended to as a condition of possibility for existence and experience. And for us, you know, the post-human piece of that is that, you know, we look also at non-humans, whether that be animals like whales or whether that be objects like rocks, uh, but also that it's rigorously post-humanist, which is to say takes on a different methodology. So it doesn't just resist the human, it really resists humanism. And so it, we actually wanted to engage with people who are developing methodologies that recognize their own positions as systems or material structures with blind spots, like our tendency to focus on human scales in the ways that complicates our understanding of things like COVID or climate change. I mean, to come back to your last question and um, the piece I didn't really speak to is like why Leiden jars or the American storm controversy. And I mean, here, those are exactly the kinds of things that we want materialism to be able to address. They are these, you know, to borrow from Timothy Morton hyper objects that we need to be able to engage with. And we wanted to see what it looks like to engage with those in Melville studies. And we were also really interested in the ways that these things already seem to matter in Melville's work. The Melville seems to be really engaging at different scales and the kinds of ways that a lot of people are trying to do now. Um, Jonathan, do you want to add to this? Sure. I would say that I agree with Meredith that we want to shy away from the term new materialism or new materialisms in part because, um, I think what that term refers to is uh, kind of a 
convergence of interest in materialisms um, that over the past 10 or 15 years, um, some of which may not be so new. Um, I think what I would add is that you can imagine a spectrum. Traditional approaches to literature might focus on the human impact on the non-human or the human um, ability to affect the non-human. On the other side of the spectrum, you could have the non have the non-human construction of the human, which is really where a lot of um, materialist scholars fall. There's also outside of the spectrum another site, which is really the non-human interaction with the non-human, which is really the most difficult to imagine, especially in terms of politics. Um, however, some of our some of our contributors try to go in that direction, specifically by focusing on the character of Ishmael and the philosoph- philosophical position he represents. And Steve Mentz's sailing without Ahab is a really good example here. Um, I think another place where rethinking politics is also a way of rethinking Ahab or vice versa comes out when we think not simply about a present day approach to matter, both animate and inanimate, but we actually try to historicize hierarchies of matter and how they've been deployed, um, particularly in the Enlightenment and 19th century. And once we bring in that epistemological frame, it complicates the kind of early 2000s or mid, mid, uh, you know, 2008 to 2012 work on materialism, which tended to be fairly ahistorical. Um, and bringing that epistemological frame often allows us to both show how Melville is making a political intervention into um, working order or standard or standard operating procedure um, deployment of um, enlightenment hierarchies of matter basically to justify conquest and environmental destruction. To take a step back, Meredith, could you offer a quick gloss of the terms vitalism and atomism? Oh, wow, that's a tough one, but I'll do my best. Uh, so, you know, uh, those are terms that obviously change considerably over time. So I'm going to focus on what they are for the kinds of people who are engaging with our Melville collection for the most part and thinking about the antebellum 19th century. And the way I tend to think about the two and the way they play out is that both imagine ultimately like invisible or subtle agencies that motivate action and also like the composition of everything, but that when they posit a substratum of all things, atomism tends to be form-based and vitalism tends to be process-based. So with atomism, there's a sense that there's some sort of subtle agencies that rot on Ahab's texture, but that those are tiny material particles of some kind. Even though we can't see them, they do exist and they do have that sort of consistent material form. Whereas for vitalism, we don't really know what's animating things. And instead of thinking structurally, usually what matters is like process and development and um, the ways that things are continuously 
in motion, I would say, at like a compositional level because they're animated. So hopefully that's helpful. Jonathan, your chapter, The Whiteness of the Will, Ahab and the Matter of Monomania, shows that the character of Ahab is in conversation with 19th century medical and legal thinking about monomania and racial formation. Can you talk about how Ahab's responsibility is tied to this term fighting Quakerism, the environment of Nantucket, and the pathologizing of a violence that seems to be endemic to extractive economies? Sure. That's um, a great question. And the point of departure for this, uh, for my chapter, was really just zooming in on the term monomania, which is used to describe Ahab something on the order of 15 times over the course of the novel. Um, and what I wanted to do was take monomania, monomania seriously in the way that it would have been deployed from about 1810 through the second half of the 19th century. Um, according to that definition, monomania uh, refers to a fixation on a single idea that is animated or um, propelled by the int- an intense affect, for example, Ahab's rage. Um, and since I've done a lot of work on the history of medicine, I wanted to think about how Melville is using a medical term that had come from France um, recently come from France. And um, I wanted to think about how Melville was either how he was diagnosing Ahab. I should say it's Ishmael that's diagnosing Ahab though. The line between uh, Ishmael's narration and a kind of anonymous narrator is kind of um, tricky in the novel. Um, So what I found though, as I was tracing a genealogy, the concept was that the term actually was picked up very rapidly and initially in murder trials and specifically um, in cases of uh, basically homicidal rage, what we would say a crime of passion. And I discovered that basically working class people or people that would be considered of lower standing, um, which includes racialized populations were often were basically exclusively uh, the people that were said to commit uh, commit murders based on uh, their homicidal monomania. Now Moby Dick represents a response to Melville's father-in-law's use of the term monomania in a landmark trial in 1844 that took place in Boston just after, um, 1843, that took place in Boston just after Melville returned from the South Pacific. And the way that I see the novel challenging that concept is that it diagnoses a sovereign figure, a ruling figure, a white person who is um, a member of something like um, an elite class with this diagnosis. To do so is to reverse a lot of the assumptions that are baked into the construction of the concept. Um, And 
over the course of uh, in reading the novel in the chapter, I effectively look at how the novel says that Ahab is constructed, um, what he is constructed by, what kind of population he is a member of, what diseases those, um, or let's say proclivities those populations are said to have, and how Ahab is both an exceptional member of that population and a logical result of tendencies within that population. And what the novel says basically is that places like Nantucket and the novel here is employing um, enlightenment climate theory, uh, which was called medical geography at the time. Um, places like Nantucket that are sandy, that are barren, um, require the necessity create certain kinds of necessities for the people that live there in order for them to live there. Living off the ocean is one. Um, killing killing uh, marine life would be one in order to eat. What the novel further suggests, though, is that there's a political economy at play in which Quakers, who originally are persecuted out, persecuted outcasts from England, who are, are who are famously pacifist, become Quakerish or fighting Quakers through living in Nantucket, um, and in a way, they're their fighting nature represents a break or an inversion of the principles of their religion, just as the um, economic quest for of, of whaling represents a transvaluation of the quest for salvation. Um, and in a way would seem to turn something that would be, um, unworldly or transcendental into a worldly endeavor, which would also seem to be, um, to some extent, a corruption of the religion. And Ahab is the logical outcome of these Quaker-ish tendencies, the tendency toward violence uh, that is produced specifically by the industry that, that he is in. He is conditioned by whaling to be rageful, to be, to become enraged. And so his fixation, his monomania is the result of that predisposition plus a trigger, which is the whale reaping away his leg, which leads to this crazy fixation. And what Melville really, um, does that I think is really interesting is he looks at this question that isn't being asked in the courts, which is what happens when a ruler or sovereign figure is the crazy one, is the one that is compelled by external forces by his own rage. Obviously, he's an authoritarian figure who takes his crew to their doom. And that's the kind of, I think that's a really fascinating question because it indicts the law and to his a lesser extent medicine in for basically not holding such figures culpable or responsible for their acts. I'll just quickly say it's so incredibly important that Jonathan's doing this work on monomania. I mean, I think it's really the material historicization of Moby Dick that is most necessary in this moment. You hear so many references to 
monomaniacal Ahab as if that makes him somehow both crazy and dictatorial. And I think it's so helpful that Jonathan is doing this work to really help us understand what it means. It's such an important term in the text and one that for some reason has gone totally overlooked, I think, for a long time. Meredith and Jonathan, could you briefly uh, get into the different sections that this collection is broken down into? The, the titles of these sections are Ontologies, Relations, Politics, New Melvilles, and then the Samuel Otter afterward. Um, what can we expect in those sections? How do they relate to each other? How do they form a trajectory? I guess I can give a quick overview and then turn it over to you to add more. Either is fun. Um, So the book is really broken, obviously, as you just said, into these um, four chapters. And we really think of it as like three, well, not chapters, gosh. The book is really broken into these four sections. And in a lot of ways, we thought of it as three sections with a fourth. There was something a little bit different, so. For us, ontologies and relations and politics really flowed together and worked together in terms of questions of scale. So the people who are writing in the ontology section were really thinking about questions of like atomism or vitalism and were driven by questions about smaller components that we might think of as like a subhuman scale. The people engaged in relations were really thinking not so much about material relations at that smaller level, but about human relations and things like compassion and empathy and connections to one another. And the people thinking about politics were really thinking at a larger scale than the human. They were thinking about social collections of people. And so for us, those are really the differences between the sections. They're definitely not exclusive. There are some people who are thinking at multiple scales, of course, which is not surprising in a collection like this, but those were really the driving scales that drove the questions of the essays. And then New Melville's was something a little different. We wanted to leave space for people who were thinking less about scale and size of connection and more about Melville's language specifically and about writing for the future. So I think the first section's really engaged with questions of representation of different bodies or agencies, and that the new Melville section instead was really shaped by close attention to language, which isn't to say that everyone wasn't focused closely on language, but that was the frame for a lot of those essays. Um, For seeing what's going on in the different chapters, I'll also quickly direct people to the website for the book, which is ahabunbound.org. And there you can actually see some detailed chapter summaries that were written by the authors. So one of our disappointments was not being able to include those at headers at the start of each chapter. So we put them on the website instead since we have them. And we think it's a really nice way for people to scroll through and get a sense of where they might want to start in the book. Jonathan. I think that was an amazing summary. I don't really have anything to add. I'd like to talk to both of you about um, your your writing processes. Um, How do research projects come together for you? What are your ultimate goals as stylists? Are you part of writing groups or workshops? Um, What would be your advice to early career scholars beginning 
you know, in on their first big projects? My writing process, let's see. Um, if you had asked this question to me when I was a grad student, I would have given a more orthodox answer and said that um, a close theoretical investigation or examination of your method is super important for generating your project and thinking through your object. Um, and I also think I also would have said something along the lines of that kind of approach should be, should be borne out in your writing so that your audience can understand what you're doing and how you're doing it and what you, and understand how you got to got to say what you ended up saying. Um, I would say nowadays that I am more eclectic and I am more comfortable shifting between different registers of writing. So for example, um, one of my projects, um, like the monomania chapter in Ahab Unbound, <clears throat> is really doing historical epistemology, which is to say tracking the genealogy of a concept or concepts um, through the institutions that use them and thinking about the ways in which those concepts were transformed, both through, um, you know, like logically describable trans, uh, changes with, you know, that within the like explanation of the concept and also through um, the pressure or force of the institution uh, on the concept to make the concept fit certain objectives. Um, but I'm also comfortable, I think, switching out of that kind of register and switching into other registers just to include other information that I think might be interesting in ways that you ne you don't necessarily have the ability to explain right, right away. I feel really grateful that I broke the 8 a.m. sort of where am I situation that I felt when I woke up. The coffee's kicked in. I'm running on adrenaline now. Yeah, uh, you didn't have to feed 60 animals this morning, though. Oh, my gosh. Look at us. That's the difference between uh, before the first book is out and after. I have a life now. It's very different. Uh, I did not have a life while we were working on this. Jonathan can vouch. But, you know, to that end, I'll say... I also would have answered this differently in graduate school from how I would answer it in a house. I mean, in graduate school, it's like there's a list of things that you should make sure you do, right? Like make sure you take something and you brand it and you make sure that everybody knows it's yours and just like stomp all over it like a dog at a fire hydrant. Literally, that's something that was said to me and it will stay with me forever. I was like, wow, well, I guess if that's what we're doing here at the heart of inquiry then sure, okay, apparently this is getting territorial. You'll never get a job if people don't know exactly who you are and what you do. And now I've sat in meetings about hiring people, and I know how much that's not true. We just want people who do the same things as like we do, but differently enough that we can justify hiring them. And it really has nothing to do with like research a lot of the times. And, uh, you know, I tell people, for one – instead of focusing on a long list of things that you're getting told that you're supposed to do, 
try to actually engage in a conversation. I think we say that, but we should say it more. I mean, I feel like one reason people are excited about this book, hopefully, is that we are engaging in and also creating a real conversation between people. And it's something where there's space to weigh in and where people can talk about it. Not, it's not just like, here's a new term. Here's a definitive five chapter take on that term. There's not a lot of room left. You would have to be a specialist in this term that I created to really be able to weigh in. And instead we've really posed a question and given a bunch of different takes on it. And I've found that that's been really generative um, not everyone can do that in a monograph, but for people who are not headed toward tenure, first of all, uh, which is most of us in this moment, I found that the edited collection path was really generative and it was a lot more fun. It let me reach out to all sorts of people in my field that I wanted to know better and that I wanted to be in conversation with and to just build that conversation. So, I mean, I took a gamble at a moment. I was pretty sure that no one was really getting tenure anymore and was like, well, let's just do something I care about. If I'm only going to get one book out, this would be a fun one. And here we are. Um, Second, I'd say, no, this will take longer than you expect. And with an edited collection, add another year or two to that. So let go of these fantasies about timelines of your book. They are basically as big of a lie as you'll finish grad school in five years. And some people do that. Like, this is just not true. Don't feel stuck by it. Don't feel trapped. Don't start feeling behind and then shut down. Uh, Be kind to yourself. You probably don't have the jobs that the timelines people share with you are based on. And you don't have the working conditions that those timelines are based on. You don't live in the scholarly world that they're based on. There are jerks out there who had to send out like 20 job applications and then they got a job in a year where there were 20 jobs to apply for. So obviously they had more writing time than anyone has now. And they had to define job market year, which is baffling. Can you imagine only being on the job market for like a month? Instead, everyone's on the job market 12 months a year. So just know that you don't live in the same world. And if people are expecting you to write on a certain timeline, don't get so tired and exhausted that you can't think. Um, Second, stop talking about, and this is what I tell my master's students, stop sitting around talking about writing and how to write, then check your perfectionism and actually sit down and write something. Because the biggest problem I see is that like all these conversations about how to write and what they should be doing and making writing groups and workshops just becomes an incredible form of procrastination that people use to not get anything done. And especially once you're adjuncting, which is the case for most people, or once you're on a teaching track where you've got even you know three classes a semester, you don't really have a lot of time for things like writing groups and workshops. You could do one or two a year, but if you're trying to do a lot, you're probably not actually getting any writing done. So I mean, just write, honestly. Write and then go have conversations about what you're writing, but don't get lost in trying to do the process correctly because other people are working in different conditions. Yeah, following up on that, I think the advice that the perennial advice to grad students is that you'll never have more time than this. So take advantage of it is actually pretty true. Um, But it comes along with um, advice that is less often said that Meredith just said that you should treat yourself well and trust yourself And that's important, not simply in terms of, say, 
self-care, but it's also important in recognizing that you are good enough to approach people that you might be intimidated by because you see them as senior scholars or people you've only read. If you just come up with something that you think is a good idea and you put that together, the frame of a project, you can, you can put together an edited collection and get it off the ground. And you don't have to be fearful that you're going to upset someone. That person has less time than you. They are grateful that you're putting together something with a good frame that, in, that incorporates them and that you want them to be part of this project. Um, that, those are all really important points that I wish I had known. I think in the process of making this collection, we also learned that you should just always ask other people for advice and other questions about different steps that you've never taken before, but you know they have, and that you can just get a sense of what kinds of things you have to do. You don't always have to do what people say, but it's helpful to know that publishing is not as mysterious as uh, it might seem when you've never done it. Yeah, I'll add things I learned from editing this collection, uh, which is something we started doing as graduate students, include, number one, within a year of the deadline is the new on time. That was really stunning to me. I remember just sending these long apologies for being like two weeks late with a chapter of an edited collection. And now I know that these editors were probably like, man, this kid is on the ball because I think we got one of the chapters two and a half years late. And that person was just like, oh, yeah. And I mean, they were not really alone. There were a couple of people that were two years late. And again, I'm not saying that to criticize them. I'm saying it's say that's like the reality of our profession. Um, so it comes back to like, be kind to yourself and don't beat yourselves up. Um, we were also happy when people took a little extra time and gave us good work than when they like rushed to hit the deadline, but it was half formed. And then we had to do a lot of work as editors to try to like find the core of the piece that we were happy to do that. Um, but again, like, I think there's a sense as grad students that you have to do everything perfectly or else the whole world will collapse and you'll never get a job. Um, and I think this taught us that first drafts to editors look messier than we think they will from people who have a lot of experience and that it's okay to not be perfect out the gate and to let editors help you. And second, that people often take more time than you think they do, and that's okay too. All my subsequent work, most of which is very late right now. Apologies to anyone I owe work to who's listening to me say it's fine. I know this book has only recently been published, but can you talk a little bit about your forthcoming monographs and any other projects that are, are coming down the line? Absolutely. Um, you know, first, the forthcoming monograph about Melville, it's called Melville's Leaks. Um, and I've found that that's been on the back burner lately to some degree. So a lot of it rehearses some similar themes to what we talked about in the Ahab book. It's engaging with questions of Melville, personhood, questions of agency, and their relationship to larger political questions. And one thing I'm finding is that, in part because I ended up with a job that's not a tenure-line job, but instead is a teaching-based position, where I have like promotional tracks, which is great, but where I get credit for digital projects is that 
instead, really, my heart right now is in two big public digital projects. And those are the two things I'm most engaged in. So the first is a project called Hidden Town, which we're working on in conjunction with a local museum called Old Salem Museum and Gardens. And Hidden Town is a project that they developed to essentially uncover, if not excavate, the repressed history of slavery in our community. So when you ask people who live where we do in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, a lot of people say that they don't think we actually had slavery in our space because it was a Moravian community and a particular kind of religious community where people weren't enslaved. And in fact, it turns out that it's not the case. At first, enslaved people were rented, and then in fact, they were purchased. And at the moment that they shifted to allow the purchase of people who were forcibly in captivity, um, is the same moment that it became a thriving mill town that really took off. And so like the growth of the commercialism of Winston-Salem, now known for Winston and Salem cigarettes, the growth of that beautiful nicotine-fueled community was actually slave labor. And so we're trying to tell that story. And I'm working with students to do it, which is something that's been really wonderful. So I actually have classes where we spend half the semester reading slave narratives and learning about the history of slavery. But we spend the back half, and you can see this in the website, it's hiddentown.org, actually developing digital audiovisual projects for middle school students and then writing research papers that give more context to you know teachers or parents or people who want to learn more about people in the community. And right now we're shifting into a new phase of the project that I'm deeply excited about where we're actually going to build apps that are virtual monuments, like maps of virtual monuments where you can walk through the city and go to different monuments that are related to either people, places, or events that are especially notable for the history of slavery, where we are and where we live, so that people in the community and beyond the community can learn about what was actually going on here. And so that's kind of maybe superseded Melville in terms of what I'm interested in in this moment. It's also so fun with the digital project, as we just talked about timeline, to see how quickly it all moves, right? I mean, every semester I have students building out eight projects across two classes, and then they're online a few months later. And there's something wonderful about being able to actually make things for the community that happen quickly. And then the second project is one that'll be a mix of a digital project and a research project, and it's called Reading the Weather in the 19th Century. So um, there basically, as I was working on the Melville work about the storm controversy, one thing I found is that people were obsessing about climate change in the 19th century. So really in about 1826, um, a person was writing a U.S. Army Medical Department document called the Meteorological Register and wrote that he had a goal to make sense of the material change in the climate at a moment when the time for improving the problem was visibly fast passing away. And I was like, are you kidding me? It's time to think about climate change 200 years ago. What did this look like? How did it operate? And I really want to share the history of the fact that, among other things, people were interested in climate change in that moment for agrarian and military purposes, which might be a way of making climate change an issue again that is of interest to people across the political spectrum, right? Like, how do you get climate change deniers to care about climate change? And maybe this is a tiny way in. Um, And so that's something that's of interest to me. 
but I'm also interested in sharing not just the history of the military documentation, which has been done, but of thinking about the cultural history of what people knew about climate change. So there are people who have done good work to show what people in the sciences and in the military had to say. But I don't really have a good sense, and I don't think we have a good sense of how people thought about weather and climate in the 19th century. And I think it would be really helpful and hopefully interesting to do that. So I'm working on like building out a DH corpus to actually you know, scrape information to get a sense of how people represented and talked about climate change across the decades and to see what that looked like, what the concerns were and how it's changed or developed or shifted. Um, so that obviously has a lot of potential to be, I think, a fun digital project in addition to potentially a monograph down the road. Jonathan. Um, yeah, I'm working on two projects right now. The first is an unusual dual volume um, because a couple of years ago I discovered that Harriet Jacobs's brother, John Jacobs, had published an autobiographical slave narrative in Australia that had been lost for over 150 years. This narrative has a pretty astounding title, The United States Governed by 600,000 Despots, A True Story of Slavery. And in addition to editing and annotating Jacobs's narrative, I'm also writing a biography of him. Uh, what I think makes Jacobs's narrative really interesting is that it represents a kind of slave narrative that we don't have other examples of or not many examples of. We might, we might call that something like the global, global slave narrative uh, or the migrant slave narrative or something, uh, the international slave narrative, something in, the, in that register. And it also sort of makes, us, makes you wonder how many slave narratives by African-Americans were published overseas, particularly after the passage of the Fugitive Slave Act in 1850, which um, basically led up to 5% of the black population, of the enslaved black population uh, to flee the country. Um, no systematic search has been done for these narratives, so the answer is we don't know right now, except for that new ones are popping up in uh, England uh, with pretty increasing frequency as more and more things get digitized. Um, and that's the other uh, thing is that perhaps the undiscovered territory for literary texts it are periodicals and newspapers, um, precisely because the older methods of research were too time-consuming to find all the things that are are lost in the millions and millions of words. Um, to turn to the biography, um, I thought it would be important to establish who John Jacobs is and where the Jacobses came from in a way that I think is important because J John Jacobs takes a back seat in Jean Fagan Yellen's biography, Harriet Jacobs, A Life, for obvious reasons, and because Harriet Jacobs herself used pseudonyms in Incidents of the Life of a Slave Girl, such that it's hard to remember that 
she's very close with William, her brother, the pseudonym she uses for John. Um, the biography is expansive because I was able to discover um, legal depositions um, of one of the first fugitive slave cases in the U.S. after the passage of the first Fugitive Slave Act in 1793 that involved um, Harriet and John's great-grandparents um, and actually allows uh, and actually tells us who their ancestors are back to the sixth generation when their first ancestors were trans enslaved and transported and carried to North Carolina in roughly the 1720s. Um, the reason I go so far back in time and tell that story is partly because I want to look at the slave narrative, look at the relationship between biography and the auto and the autobiography as a kind of oblique relationship where you tell, you can tell the story of a family's life, family's lives, the story of an individual in order to trace perhaps how the intergenerational memory of slavery was transmitted across these generations and perhaps makes its way obliquely into um, a text like the United States governed by 600,000 despots. Um, I'm not one to, you know, commit the biographical fallacy, but I also think that the kind of prescription against it is a little bit too heavy handed and dates to a moment when um, people who were uh, influenced by structuralism and post-structuralism were, were assuming power within the humanities. Um, and that's a good turning point to talk about my second project, which is called Prisoners of Loss, an Atlantic History of Nostalgia. Um, this project is follows a very different method, and particularly um, I'm interested in the method of historical epistemology that's associated with people like uh, Lorraine Dastin, Ian Hacking, Foucault, uh, and others. And I'm interested in it particularly because um, I think that digitization allows us to intensify the kind of history of concepts and history of concepts within institutions that those scholars were doing in an analog format. Um, and so this book is really about the formation of the concept of nostalgia and its use in three institutions of confinement in the Americas. Um, so we're accustomed to think of nostalgia as a kind of fond, sentimental, uh, benign um, longing for the past or for lost times and places that can occasionally whitewash history um, by putting on blinders. And then on, in its uh, scarier moments, it can be used to mobilize uh, authoritarian regimes, which are calling for the violent restoration of the past. And you can think of uh, a history from Mussolini to Trump right there. Um, in this, what, what's surprising about the history of nostalgia is that nostalgia 
was considered a fatal illness and formed, and the word was actually formed in Enlightenment medicine. And so from 1688, when the word was coined by a Swiss medical student until roughly the beginning of the 19th, uh, the 20th century, nostalgia referred to a fatal form of homesickness. What scholars haven't really explored, except for maybe Cristobal Silva, is that the victims of nostalgia were exclusively people who had been forcibly displaced from home. And here we can think about soldiers and sailors, um, but also slaves and prisoners. And so what I look at in Prisoners of Loss is the formation of nostalgia in the 18th century, the long 18th century, as a disease of fatal homesickness, but also as a disease that was attributed to certain populations who were said to be predisposed to extreme melancholy and predisposed to um, this particular form of melancholy, uh, the special melancholy nostalgia. Transformations in the 18th century uh, within the concept made it useful for institutions of confinement in the Americas. And so I trace the different routes that the concept traveled um, to the Caribbean, to America, and to South America in order to get a comparative sense of how this concept took on new shapes within different institutions and across uh, lines of nation lines of race and nation. Um, so for example, in the US, the disease nostalgia was never diagnosed in slaves, whereas in Spanish speaking and Portuguese speaking colonies and countries, uh, it was frequently diagnosed in slaves and attributed to um, one of two different kinds of um, acts of self-destruction, what we might say using, if we were to medicalize it, call suicide. Um, one, the figure of the enslaved person who jumps overboard off a ship to their death in order to return home or uh, jumps into any body of water. Um, and number two, um, figures in largely in Brazil who are said to um, suffer from a wasting illness of version of nostalgia that was called the bonzo in which they would refuse to eat and um, s basically starve themselves to death. <clears throat> what I show is that these descriptions of uh, different acts of self-destruction and these labels which are that both labeled as nostalgia are ways of neutralizing the political content of these acts, which could be seen as um, efforts to destroy the basis of slavery in human property, which while that's a gruesome, you know, it's a gruesome thought to think about. Um, these were the extremes that people were forced into when they were treated as property. Um, and on the, the other hand, starvation could be seen as a hunger strike, a refusal to do the bidding of a master. Um, 
the project moves from looking at um, the history of um, nostalgia in the military to the history of nostalgia in slavery, and then to the history of nostalgia in uh, the prison system to look at ways in which the concept was adapted in different ways and ways in which sometimes it wasn't adapted in other ways. Um, I haven't quite gotten to <clears throat> unlock the mystery of how nostalgia was exactly depathologized, even though I can um, periodize it. Um, and all what I can say is that a lot of the assumptions that were built into the old medical explanation of nostalgia and the form of that explanation are preserved in our modern form of nostalgia, which has been um, amplified and, and now um, become a term that um, can be applied to virtually anyone. Um, and so I'll be getting to that project not too long from now um, and hopefully um, look at some uh, medical writing from the 18th century, um, all of which was um, written in Latin. And so I've been uh, translating a bunch of these Latin medical dissertations, which is um, relatively tedious work, but <clears throat> I think it will get at some of the, get at the heart of some of the major debates that helped form this concept. We will look forward to all of those projects. Um, thank you, Jonathan and Meredith, for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks yeah, for inviting thanks us. Thanks so much for having us today.